conquered an empire from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea. They despoiled the great city of Babylon and enslaved the tribes of Israel. Even the pharaoh of Egypt paid them tribute. Their army became the largest yet seen, their warriors the greatest, and their warfare the cruelest. The cradle of civilization. You guys have actually no idea of how long I've been wanting to do a, a podcast on this particular topic. Just because it's so close to my heart to bring in awareness. Um, it's kind of like, you know, not people not knowing your true identity. It's not. I'm not talking about names or personality or anything like that. I mean, sure, that does come into it, but it's more identity when we talk about the true roots from your grandparents, your parents, your brothers, your cousins, the whole generation, the ancestors, most importantly. And this this particular podcast, I, I, my initial thing is one, to educate, and two, to spread awareness of a, a sort of kingdom or city or um, nation that was so dominant to the point where it was so far mentioned in biblical times that it was dubbed as god's punishment the ruthlessness and determination to be so dominant back in the ancient world was is is beyond me and i I really hope that you guys can get most of out of it and you know like you've most likely heard me talk about my nationality being assyrian even seeing the word uh, or seen that particular thing in, in, in that weird opera play by Kanye West titled Nebuchadnezzar. I think it happened about a month a month ago or, or, or just at the start of the year or just be uh, the end of last year. And just wondered if, if, if that statue that had on that was on there, if it was Egyptian. But then again, it really didn't look like a normal Egyptian status or statue or, or even sounded like one of the pharaohs of the Egyptians that we're really used to welcome to all things relatable the relatable podcast welcome to the relatable source if you're new here thank you so much for listening i really do appreciate it um like i always say this podcast is 100 percent free but i do ask for a small fee um if you find something that you can relate to something that will put value into your life or something that you um you know will disagree with or don't like but still want to stick around and find out more I urge you to tell a friend or a group of friends or if you really want to hook a brother up, you know, giving me a five-star rating on where you're listening to this from um, really does help. So next time you're having a conversation with your friends, family or colleagues or anyone in general, you know, I'd really love a plug from you guys, you know, tell them about this particular podcast or even yet suggest some topics that you would love for me to talk about. Um, This podcast is not intended for me to preach my knowledge because I generally want to learn from you guys as well as um, you know, any feedback or, or suggestions that you guys might might have is, is truly valued and appreciated. I don't. This isn't my particular knowledge. You know, knowledge is so much that you can go with, but it's 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 research that goes into articles, newspapers, um, YouTube videos, videos from other resources, uh, even getting people's opinions and thoughts that really are you know uh, opinionated on this matter. And then even though that they might not be correct, it's a matter of understanding that sure they've heard of this topic and this is their opinion on it. You know. But if I got paid 
by the amount of times I had to explain what my nationality really is, where it's located and the history behind it, honestly, I'd be retired by now. I think I can speak for every Assyrian, Syriac, or Chaldean on planet Earth that are scattered all around, that it becomes a chore when we have to explain a history lesson each time we meet someone new that either knows little or nothing about the Assyrians. And, you know, that's what initially what the podcast is about. So let's dive in, get back in time, back way, way back in time to understand the true nature of the first nation to really dub the name the cradle of civilization. Now, the Assyrians were one of the one of the major peoples or major, you know, citizens to live in Mesopotamia during ancient times. You know, they lived in northern Mesopotamia near the start of the uh, it was near the start of the T- Tigris and Euphrates River. And I'm sure you guys are aware of that from each ancient Egyptian class and all that stuff. So now the Assyrian Empire rose and fell so much times throughout history. And you'd be interested to know that the Assyrians, like I've mentioned before, are considered to be the first people that paved the way to being the cradle of civilization. And I really want to take you to a journey back in time to a place called Mesopotamia, you know, now, which is basically modern day Iraq. Or as the Americans would say, modern, di- modern day Iraq. And now this these people are you know they with with historians i'm not too sure about other people in general because i i, I do sense a uh, a lack of knowledge and awareness with these with these people uh, they are the true cradle of civilization one of the first people to you know hold so many different inventions and 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 dominance across the world to things that we use today you know and obviously they've evolved through time but it's because of the assurance that it has happened through them because it it is the first place, Mesopotamia, it's the first place where complex urban centers grew and were established. Now, the history of Mesopotamia, however, it's inextricably tied to the greater region, which is which is basically comprised of nations such as Egypt, Iran, uh, importantly, Assyria, where often referred to the re- to this region as Near or Middle East, which is literally where the name com- came, comes from, the Middle East. Now, the people that inhabited Mesopotamia were the Assyrians. The Assyrians are a people who lived in in the Middle East since ancient times. I guess you could say that they are truly the indigenous rulers of modern day Iraq. And today, modern Assyrians can be found all over the world. For example, they can be found on this podcast speaking right now. And in ancient times, our civilization was centered at the city of Ashur. The ruins of which were located in what is now northern Iraq. The city had a god that was also called Ashur. Um, in this, this is before Christianity took took part of the Assyrians. We were we also um, the ancestors were also um, idolizing false gods and 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 just like the Egyptians, they had the you know the, the them worshiping. Um, Iris, worshipping Isis, worshipping Ra, worshipping all these people. We had Ashur, which at the time was the Assyrian king, as well as the Assyrian god. One of the Assyrian gods. Um, And in the Assyrian sense, Ashur was considered the god of war. And in the biblical sense, it translated to he who is happy or walks 
or looks. Even in the Hebrew translation, it refers to someone who is warlike. So you can get a sense of the sort of dominance such or, or dominance slash humanesque nature of this person. Now, the territory that the Assyrians controlled could be vast, stretching at times from southern Iraq to the Mediterranean coast and were considered at the time the most ruthless rulers this world had to offer. Their dominance feared by almost all nations surrounding them. There were, there were a somatic people who originally, originally spoke and wrote Akkadian before the easier to use Aramaic language became more popular, which I can guarantee you almost every Assyrian or Chaldean that you meet in your lifetime, or if you had met, met them in your lifetime, please do tell them this because they will tell you this, that it is 100% true and it is 100% true. We spoke slash speak the same language that Jesus Christ Jesus Christ spoke back in those times. That's how ancient the Assyrians are. Historians have divided the rise and fall of the Assyrian Empire into three periods. Now you've got the Olden Kingdom, the Middle Empire, and the Late Empire, also known as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Although I should mention that Assyrian history continued on past that point. Like I said, there are still Assyrians living in the regions of Iran and Iraq, and pretty much all over the world in, in the present time. I mean. I mean, there is a large community based in Australia right about now and America, which I have so many cousins and, and, and family that, that, are, that are from there. And I, I do understand there are some in Sweden as well, as well, actually scattered all over Sweden for some reason. Now, in the ancient world, the Assyrian Empire was considered the greatest of the Mesopotamian and worldly empires due to its expansion and the development of the bureaucracy and military strategies, which allowed it allowed the, the, the nation to grow and flourish. Now you got the nation basically beginning as a small trading community centered at the ancient city of Ashur. And it grew to become the greatest empire in the ancient world prior to the conquests. So this is before Alexander the Great and after him, the Roman, the Roman Empire. I want to mention that just because I want to get a sense of, of, of things that you guys might be aware of just to understand that these guys were really, or my ancestors were really, you know, the first to ever do it. While the Assyrians' administrative skills were impressive and their adaptation at diplomacy, when necessary, these were not the means by which the empire grew to rule the ancient world. As we see today, you know, it's, it's very... Um, necessary to have a very structured and well-maintained country to be one of the highest rulers. I mean, look at Russia and America. But it was really their military strategies. They were unmatched. The Assyrian war machine was the most efficient military force in the ancient world. The secret to its success was a professionally trained standing army, iron weapons, advanced engineering skills, effective tactics and most importantly a complete ruthlessness agenda which came to characterize the Assyrians to their neighbors and subjects and still attaches itself to the reputation of Assyria in the modern day world. Just to simplify their tactics were the following. Now I want to I want to I want to get you guys an understanding of how their military tactics were structured. Now, usually with other nations, you would have the soldiers 
with spears and arrows um, and swords. And you got to understand at the time they were barefoot, right? And you would have their armor and so forth. But the Assyrians, they consisted of four branches, which were, they had light infantry, which were slingers and archers. You had the heavy infantry, which were speeds, swords, and daggers. You had chariotry, who were two archers, shielded bearers, and drivers. And you had the cavalry, small bows, small bows, sorry, and long spears. They also had siege masters, which consisted of catapults and battering rams. And the brutality of the Assyrians towards their prisoners was that gruesome that it nicknamed them God's punishment. The actions they would practice on their enemies were that they would burn alive, impale, flail alive, which means to peel or beat the skin of a human being and would leave them raw and wounded. And then they would feed them to their pet lions who were a common pet of the king and higher officials. That's why, guarantee when you would Google these people, you would see the king's statues of them next to lions or them hunting lions. These people would lead captives, so prisoners from different, nation, from different nations, by lip rings attached to a stick that would be held by the Assyrian soldier while they blind their eyes in the process. So they're holding them like the dog. Now usually the dog, you have a collar around their neck. This, this collar was around their nose, right? Sorry, not their nose. No, it was around their lips. And while they were dragging them, they would poke their eyes with a pointy, pointy um, arrow of some sort, just so they don't kill them, but rather torture them. Now, a phrase often repeated by Assyrian kings in their inscriptions regarded, regarding military conquest is, I destroyed, devastated, and burned alive with fire. Referring to those cities, towns, and regions which resisted Assyrian rule. Every young Assyrian man was expected to train as a warrior and be ready to fight. You know, as the Assyrian Empire grew, they built a standing army. Now, usually a standing army is made up of professional soldiers whose only job and purpose in life is to fight. The Assyrian soldiers were trained in siege warfare, uh, battle tactics, and hand-to-hand -hand combat. Every spring, the Assyrian army would launch a battle campaign that was like a marketing proposal to take over. That's how confident they were in conquering nations. They would conquer rich cities, expanding the Assyrian empire, and bringing back all these seized wealth to, to the king. It, it is estimated that the size of the Assyrian army at its peak was several hundred thousand soldiers. Now, at the time, if you want to compare it to today's sort of army, you're going to have to put America and Russia together. And then maybe a sprinkle of China. But they didn't use all their soldiers. They didn't need to. The Assyrian kings were, were, they were not to be messed with at no precaution whatsoever. And their inscriptions vividly depict that the fate which was certain for those who defied them. Now you've got a, a, a historian by the name of Simon Anglim. Simon, Simon writes, The Assyrians created the world's first great army and the world's first great empire. This was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer, unalterated terror. It was Assyrian policy always to demand that examples be made of those who resisted them. 
this included deportations of entire peoples and horrific physical punishments. One inscription from a temple in the city of Nimrod records the fate of the leaders of the city of Suru on the Euphrates River who rebelled from and were reconquered by one of the Assyrian kings. And the, the Assyrian king writes, I built a pillar at the city gate and I flailed all the chief men who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Simon then later on goes that such punishments were not uncommon. Furthermore, inscriptions recording these vicious acts of retribution were displayed throughout the empire to serve as a warning. Yet this officially sanctioned cruelty, it seemed to have had the opposite effect. Though the Assyrians and their army were respected and feared, they were most of all hated and the subjects of their empire were in almost constant state of rebellion. Which really doesn't doesn't really um, surprise me to be honest. In today's modern day, in the Assyrian community, there is so much, so so much debate going on between tribes and and um, culture and even religion. You know, you got the Catholics and the Orthodox and and the Assyrian Church of the East, and or if you're a Chaldean or if you're Syriac or if you're Assyrian, where usually everyone well not usually everyone is coming from originality from being assyrian but there is still that debate where people just don't want to come together at all now when i mentioned that it was the world's first professional army when you look well basically when you look at when you work at a company regardless of the industry or better yet when you get serviced by a particular organization the things that are known is the level of professionalism, quality, and the new and improved strategies that are used by that particular company that really makes you appreciate their work. Well, in ancient times, the Assyrians were so far ahead of everyone in their quest that it was it was their military tactics and determination and gaining those the resources needed to be great that set them apart from everyone around them. Tiglath Pelesa III, an Assyrian king, who at the time decreed that the Assyrian men would be hired and trained as professional soldiers and would serve in the military as a full-time job. He increased trade and the production of iron weapons and acquisition of horses as well as the construction of war chariots and, and siege engines. And it was his mission to fulfill his duty of being a king by having men that were ready for everything and everyone. Once the king had his army functioning at peak efficiency, he put it to use. He marched north to defeat the kingdom of Aratu, which is ancient Armenia. He then defeated eastern Turkey and northwestern Iran. And evidently, the kingdom of Aratu had long been a powerful enemy of the Assyrians. It, it, it did go down in history that once you become an enemy of the Assyrians, then that mark is permanent. Now, with ancient Armenia under Assyrian control, he then marched west into Syria and punished the kingdom of Syria, which was known as Arpad at the time in 741 
BCE. He sieged the city for three years, and when it fell and crumbled, he had it destroyed. And those who lived in it, slaughtered. Those who survived were deported to the regions as slaves, as he wanted to make use of every resource he deemed was, um, well, resourceful. Campaigns such as the long siege of Arpad in Syria could could only have been done by a professional army like the, the one King Tiglath-Pileser had created. You know, um, Dubovsky, he's a historian that, that goes on to state this, ex this expansion of the Assyrian Empire could not have taken place without the new organization of the army, improved logistics and weaponry, and in particular the use of iron weapons instead of bronze. Which I guess you could say that the Assyrians were trendsetters in warfare. Actually, not guess, you could say, like you actually would say, that they are the trendsetters of warfare. Iron weapons could not could be mass produced to equip a much larger fighting force than than it was able previously to be able to be put in fields and of course was stronger than bronze weapons. Still, even though we can distinguish an improvement in Pelessa's weaponry, in particular it's in siege engines, the, the weapons alone are never able to win a war unless used in a carefully planned campaign. It's like fighting. You have a guy with muscles and the agility and strength versus the guy that's trained that's a trained martial arts student. Now, the martial arts student would have a better fighting strategy compared to the guy with muscles since he knows who what to hit and where to target. Palessa's brilliant successes in battle lay in his military strategies and his willingness to do whatever the fuck it was to be required to succeed in his objectives having a win at no matter what mentality this king who was ruthless in nature had at his disposal the largest most well-trained and best equipped fighting force in the history of the world up at that time there's an inscription by a historian detailing how king to how, how how the king's army appeared to their opponents now we've all seen the uh the movie troy at the start of the movie, you'll see that the two, um, Troy was, he's basically sleeping at this time in, while war was happening. And, and the, uh, the, the two nations said that they'll bring in their both, uh, their best fighting um, soldiers. One, you can see at the other end was a massive, massive, massive fighter who had no protection of army, not needed because he was that strong. Then the rest they were calling out for Troy, but Troy was sleeping. Then you had the little kid that was running in, going inside the tent, telling Troy was needed. And as soon as he came in by the horse, everyone started cheering. And then you see that while, you know, the other nation was looking at Troy, they said, oh, he's skinny, no muscles or like what? He just has helmets and that's it. A man is going to win. He's got muscles. And as they go in, it took one strike for Achilles, sorry, not Troy, Achilles, to kill him. And then he looked at the soldiers, and you can just see the fear in their eyes, knowing that they're about to die. That was, think of that with the Assyrian army, but a hundred times worse. Now, the, the other end of the army... While looking at the Assyrian army, they would have been in the center of the army's formation, the main body of infantry, compact bodies of spearmen, uh, their weapon points 
glittering in the sun, each arranged in ten files of twenty ranks, they would have admired and shivered in fear. At the discipline and precision of their management, a massive difference to the relatively free-willing manner of other well-known successful ancient armies, for the reform had introduced a highly developed and effective com command structure. You do as you're told and make sure you win. Strategy. Now, the military structure was unlike any other. It, it, if we look at them today, you would think, oh, it's basic. That, that not every army in, in the history of planet Earth would hold the same weight, but nope. The Assyrians were as structured as ever. They had infantrymen who fought in squads of ten, each headed by a leader, and grouped into companies of five to twenty squads under the command of a captain. They were well protected and even better equipped, for Assyria was fielding the very first iron armies. Iron swords, iron spear blades, iron helmets, and even iron scales sewn as armor on their tunics. There was no contest with the bronze-made armies. This, this new iron metal material, which was cheaper, harder, less fragile, could be ground sharper and kept at a stronger edge for far, far longer. Now here's the plot twist. You have to also understand that iron metal is not found in the northern Mesopotamian heartland. So every effort had been made to be put all nearby sources of the metal under Assyrian control. The cities and kingdoms that were under control of the Assyrian Empire were used very wisely. Now then you have Assyrian spearmen who were more mobile than their predecessors too. Rather than sandals, they now wore the Assyrian military invention that was arguably one of the most influential and long-lasting of all, the army boots. And in this case, the boot was knee-high leather footwear, thick-soled, hobnailed, and with iron plates inserted to protect the shins, which made it possible for the first time ever to fight on any terrain, however rough or wet, mountain or marsh, and in any season, winter or summer. Introducing to history the first all-weather, all-year army. That's why I keep saying the trendsetters in warfare. Formations of chariots, mobile missile platforms, the ancient equivalent of tanks. These were no longer dawn, drawn at a, at a slow pace by donkeys, but by much faster, larger, and more rugged animals. Horses. Each chariot was powered by up to four of those beasts. Now this, this, this was the army that men like King Menechem of Israel, who can today be compared to the same power of modern-day Russia and America combined, saw as threatening to their cities. In, in his case, Menechem's case, he chose to submit without resistance, uh, paying Tiglath a thousand talents of silver to leave him alone. This transaction, uh, this transaction is actually mentioned in the Bible in in, in Second Kings fifteen, uh, verse fifteen. Sorry, chapter fifteen, verse nineteen, and in One Chronicles chapter five, verse twenty six, as well as in Assyrian inscriptions. And by it, Menachem saved himself and his city. He only had to swear loyalty and pay tribute to the Assyrian government to avoid having his city sacked, and the people slaughtered. You know, the decision and the huge cost paid off. Thanks to Assyrian support, Menachem was the only Israelite ruler during this period who managed to retain his position and die naturally in his bed. You know, once loyalty was assured, with the Assyrians' regions such as Israel under Menachem was 
were allowed to retain some autonomy and continue on with their lives as before. Basically, this guy, who's a king of a large, large nation with so much resources, so much army soldiers, went down and kissed the boot of the Assyrian king to make sure that they don't mess around and kill him and his people. And then, on top of that, he paid him a thousand talents, which could be at the equivalent of a hundred million to, to billions, billions of dollars. Now in 736 BC, now we're coming to sort of the end. Tiglath-Pileser marched on to the north and conquered the Medes and Persians, expanding his empire far into the region now known as Iran. At this point, his empire covered the whole Mesopotamian modern-day Iraq era and the Levant, an area stretching from the Persian Gulf up until to modern-day Iran, across to the Mediterranean Sea and down through Israel, basically the whole of Middle East. Now here's where it gets interesting. A revolt broke out in the city of Babylon, which was inside of Assyria, it's sort of like a, a state. And after the death of King Nabunassar and Tiglath basically marched onto the city, put down the revolt, told everyone to shut up and executed the pretender to the throne. He then had himself crowned King of Babylon and officiated at the sacred festival celebrating the new year, which up until now is still celebrated in Assyrian culture. Matter of fact, I'm going to the festival myself, which is on April 1st. Or actually, I think it's on March 28th. But we still, to this day, the Assyrian community still celebrates the Assyrian New Year. Just like the Chinese New Year, we have our own New Year. Now, we've understood why the Assyrians were so ruthless and why they were so dominant. And I really hope you understand the name of the Assyrian, ancient Assyrians. Our biggest loss is our history and not many people know us. So it's nice to know that we're still around and our history still stands. With all that, what legacy did the Assyrians leave behind for the world? Now, through the expanse of their empire, the Assyrians spread Mesopotamian culture to the other regions of the world, which have in turn impacted cultures worldwide to the present day today. Through Assyrian control, or the control of Assyria, um, the appropriation of Babylon, the ancient city, and their broadcasting of that culture throughout the world empire through the long captivity of the Jews and the great influence upon them of the Babylonian life and thought through the Persian Gulf, uh, Greek conquests, which then opened with unprecedented fullness and freedom, uh, all the roads of communication and trade between Babylon and the rising cities of Iona, um, Asia, Greece, uh, through these and many other ways, the civilization of the land between rivers passed down into the culture of our race our race was basically spread out from the asians to all of asia if if i gotta put it intact and some of greece actually all of greece at the time and for good you know in the end nothing is lost for good or evil every event has effects forever now, the Assyrian occupation of Mesopotamia and their expansion of the empire throughout the Near East brought Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, to regions as near as Israel and as far as Greece. And in this way, Mesopotamian 
thought became infused with those cultures and a part of their literacy and cultural heritage was adapted from Assyrian life. Now you're probably wondering, the Assyrians were leaders conquering everything in their path, but with every great empire comes an even greater fall. And in the decline and fall of the Assyrian Empire, Babylon assumed supremacy. They basically took back the land. Uh, Babylon then fell to the Persians under Cyrus the Great, which then fell to Alexander the Great. And among the, the, the greatest achievements, however, was the Aramaic alphabet into the Assyrian government by, by King Tig Tiglath. You know, and you realize why all these inscriptions, some are in, in Akkadian, which was a very, very ancient language. However, they some inscriptions were changed to Aramaic because it was a much easier language. Imagine changing that. You changed a whole language of your entire city just because you thought it was easier from your end that you could understand it and, and speak it. Communication was a major, major key to dominance. I mean, it was spreading around. And you got to understand, and if we follow the Bible correctly, and not even just the Bible, just the, the life of, of Jesus, him speaking the language, it must have scattered uh, across from nation to nation for them to be adaptive of that particular language, who, which came from the Assyrians. You know? Um, the result was that thousands, thousands of years in history and culture were preserved for future generations. And this is the greatest of Assyria's legacy. The sad thing is that terrorist organizations such as ISIS had control of parts in Iraq that obtained sculptures, scriptures, statues, and other forms of amazing Assyrian history and were destroyed. And their history was almost a threat. Now, basically, what did it, what did the Assyrians invent? Ancient Assyrians were inhabitants of one of the world's earliest civilizations, which is why I continue to mention my ancestors as being the first to establish the term, the cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia. You know, it grew up around 3,500 BC. Some of the inventions of the Assyrians brought to the world were really important. I mean, you got like the first written language and a 360 degree circle. You know, they established uh oh, i can't even say that word hammurabi hammer hammurabi's code of law which was a collection of 282 rules basically they were established standards for commercial interactions and set fines and punishments to meet the requirements of justice you know now you got modern day assyrians being myself and many others that would listen to this podcast we claim descent from the inhabitants of the Assyri uh, ancient assyrian empire and linguistic um, evidence seems to support that connotation you know different dialects have developed from ancient aramaic but there's always the case but that's always the case obviously you know religion like i said always also plays a big role i mean it's an important factor in the identification and description of both ancient and modern assyrians you know modern assyrians refer to themselves themselves as suraye which can be translated as assyrian you know the ancient split between the church of the east which were nestorians and the church of antioch which were the jacobites and between those two and the rest of christianity has continued till this day you know since the split which was thousands of years ago now the picture was further complicated 
you know, it began in the 16th century. Christian, Christian missionaries from various denominations made their way to the Middle East to convert the indigenous Christians. Um, their limited succeed, uh, success led to a variety of Christian de denominations. You know, like I mentioned, there was the Jacobites, which was, you know, also the Nestorians, the, uh, the um, uh, the Church of the East, the, the Assyrian Church of the East, um, but it was also the Chaldeans, which were converted to Roman Catholicism. Yeah, but regardless, everyone is and will always will always fall with the Assyrian group. Trust me when I tell you that this is the biggest debate going around and has been going around for decades, you know, or hundreds of years actually, between the Assyrians and the Chaldeans, like two rival football teams trying to win everything. Now, throughout all this, it's basically seen as something that's influenced influenced by manpower but what about the assyrian woman women actually in ancient assyria may have received greater status or dignity like you know those compared in other middle eastern cultures let's look back to the mid 20th century assyrian women were treated almost as equals with men for example most women were considered companions to their husbands and as such you know they participated in social gatherings um polit political talk and so forth you know from continuing to speak on this and provide these stats you guys it's it's really a heartbreaker to know that my people went and are going through hell and may never get their rightful land back which is iraq i mentioned that we are big with our pride and it truly shows you know from our ancestors into today's people we've gone from rulers of the ancient worlds uh, ancient world and the first official influences to straight survival mode you know being kicked out and forced to be living in an unlivable habitation and still remaining to survive and continuing to bring generation and generation and still be following similar practices that has been followed from ancient assyrians almost 2000 plus years ago there's a saying in my family, you know, that Assyrians, Chaldeans, Syriacs, whatever you want to be identified as, our people's spirit animal is closely linked to the lion. You know, if you look at uh, all of our statues from our ancestors, you will see that they were aggressive, powerful and intimidating. And that speaks volumes when it comes to never backing down and despite having so little and literally being forced to go through a genocide. The only end of last year was accepted and considered a genocide by the UN. This genocide started back back in 1919 by the Turks or the Ottoman Empire and they wanted to wipe out the entire Armenian race and the Assyrian race. You know, from the baddest people on earth taking everything in their path to being scattered all around the world and not knowing where or how many Assyrians there are. History has a funny way of humbling your people. And I really hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast and got as much information and knowledge as you can. I know I spoke a little fast. It was just, you know, this is this topic is really, really, you know, it brings it brings home to me and, and it's it's close to my heart. So my, my biggest thing is to spread awareness and knowledge as much as possible. Um, you know, uh, I wanted to look back at the ruthlessness of my people and, and how, how much I always hear about the dominance and, and, and stature of, of my people, but my, especially my ancestors and, and so forth. And, and now basically puts it in perspective of the sort of things that we brought on this planet. You know, the, 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 in the Bible, it actually says the Assyria will rise again. Um, so there are some aspects that, that are, you know, being brought up to this day. I just want the name assyrian to be established and known and made aware of now if you want to find out you know 
what face there is to this voice, you can follow two pages. I have my own personal page, which is Boz95, that's B-O-O-Z 95, or you have the official, you know, podcast page, which is The Relatable Source, that's T-H-E, Relatable and Source, not Source, Source as in the ketchup bottle, and that's all one word, The Relatable Source um, on Instagram. I do have a Facebook page as well, which is The Relatable Source, same thing. Um, so if you want to go follow me, that would be really, a, uh, you know, helpful and, and gaining some awareness on this podcast, but all in all, catch you guys later.